my desire to be a gospel-centered lawyer, it's very difficult because your job as a lawyer, it, it is not pastoral. It, it, people want it to be pastoral until they get the bill. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but um, it's not pastoral at the end of the day. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today it is my joy to be bringing you a discussion I had with Jacob Skirka. Now, a little bit of Christian Education Podcast trivia for you. This was the first episode ever recorded outdoors. Now, there were some slight issues with the audio, largely revolving around me talking too loudly into my mic. Talking too loudly is completely out of character for me, so I'm not sure what happened there. Although the outdoor recording experience wasn't a complete bust. Somewhere throughout this discussion, Skirka does manage to get himself bitten by an ant, and I have left that in as a nice little Easter egg for you. Ultimately, I hope this conversation, A, is an interesting story for you to hear, the journey of a man from one profession to another, but B, I hope it is also illustrative for anyone out there who's thinking of making a similar change. I hope this may put some more meat on the bones if you're considering making a similar transition. So without further ado, enjoy the discussion. Well, Jacob Skirka, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Uh, Now, of course, we are on our Bruny Island Teaching and Learning Conference. Oh, yes. It's a great, great time for professional development. Uh, And in many ways, it's far less of a professional development opportunity and more of just a holiday that our two families are on. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm billing for the petrol. Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't know who you're sending the bill to. (laughs) We're here, and I thought one of my areas of passion is people coming into the field of Christian education. I absolutely love that stuff. And I've been privileged to sort of, in many ways, be in the passenger seat as you've made that transition. But, of course, you came out of law. So. As we begin our discussion today, I first want to have a look at what brought you into the field of practicing law. Yeah, so I think it was a a bit of a vacillating attention span in that uh, I was very interested in in maths when I was in secondary school, but I, for whatever reason, lost taste in that and took a bit of a hard left into psychology. And I did my first, I was in my first year of Bachelor of Behavioral Science and realized that I I was looking at what, what on earth am I going to do after university and realized that I didn't like any of the jobs or the outcomes that that would lead to. I didn't want to be a psychologist. I didn't want to um, uh, sit down and kind of help people traverse their psychological problems or even clinical psychology, which I thought was quite interesting. I wasn't really interested in that. Um, but I was doing the minor for... Uh, law. I really found those classes, or minor for criminology, which were the law prerequisites, and I found those really interesting. And I remember it was my dad who suggested, well, if you find that interesting, you don't want to go into psychology, maybe try out, try out the law. And that is how I, how I entered into the degree. And that's very interesting too, because knowing you personally, while you are traversing from one degree to another, you're actually also traveling from one continent to another. So am I right in thinking you started your university in the States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I started in the States. I did a semester in the States. Then my my whole family up and moved to Tasmania. And then I kind of started over. 
So I didn't bring any of the any of the previous classes. None of those translated into my bachelor of behavioral science. Completely started over. Uh, so it was a bit of a it was a time of pretty significant change, both just as a maturing man, as well as uh, a university student and getting used to the different different schooling systems. Very different place, Australia to America, and especially Tasmania. Uh, and for those of you who are interested, I do happen to have in my possession photos of Jacob Skirka in a marching band outfit from his time in the United no. States. So he's done his very level best to make sure they don't see the light of day. But if you email me, I'll, I should be sure to hook you up with those. So you... you if you, if you get any any emails from from any students from Emmanuel Christian School, I'd ask you to bin those immediately. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I am open to being bribed if you're listening out there. This is a small underfunded podcast and I'll do whatever I can. <laughs> You're coming to Australia, you're doing then a law degree, and law at the moment is a very competitive field. If we just look at supply and demand, there's a lot of students studying law and not that many jobs in law itself. But you managed to be one of the people who excelled, uh, at least insofar as you were able to get a job in the field you wanted coming out of law school. Yeah, it was was a pretty smooth trans... I think I've been... Looking back, I've been very blessed in my in my growing up and in in my adult life in that it was pretty smooth going from law school into legal prac. So in, in Australia, you don't do uh, the bar exams and you don't go uh, undergraduate law school bar exam. You just go straight into law school, you do a legal prac, and then you are admitted to the Supreme Court and then you become a lawyer. Um, simplified version um, and what happens is a lot of a lot of people will graduate from the will get admitted to the bar they're technically lawyers and then they spend maybe a year or so trying to get into the job as a lawyer or they just never never make it into there and I was very fortunate to make a great connection um, in in my legal prac that wound up getting me a job uh, into the uh, into the place that I ended up into the place I ended up working, which is in family law. And so I was a family lawyer for then uh, about three years. So I'm always fascinated when people are moving into a new career or studying something, they have certain conceptions about what they're moving into. It's the expectations they have. Often they don't match up with the reality, but you're bright-eyed, you're bushy-tailed, you're young, and you're keen to get into, in this case, family law. Yeah. So what exactly was it about family law that interested you and drew you in? I think it was, the big thing was you have people who are at a very significant crossroads in their life, uh, arguably going through a separation, going through, especially divorce, having to deal with splitting up the property of what is one legal entity, and then if there are children involved, having to sort out the fallback of going from one family to two families. What you find, what you get in that, those circumstances, is you get people at their very worst, at the worst point in their life, who need help. And the way I was raised in a Christian home, even when I wasn't in my formative years, the best, uh, the most um, serious about my my walk with Christ, I was still very minded towards helping people and doing work for God's kingdom. And so I look at that situation and there's a need to help kids and to help uh, broken people and broken families and it was 
that that appealed to me, is I can help people in this field. Uh, corporate law, you know, you've got a lot, of, a lot of money. Criminal law, you have a whole lot of fun, and arguably a lot of need. Um, but in family law, you have a lot of pain and a lot of problems that, that people just need help. And that really cuts against the lawyer stereotype, doesn't it? And there's a thousand lawyer jokes that we could rattle through. Um, and most of it has to do with them being gutless and spineless and all this sort of stuff. However, these seem to be quite noble ambitions which drove you into the field of family law. So there's, there's, there's nothing against you in that arena. No, well, and I'd say even with... Um I would say the, the number of like spineless, gutless lawyers that I met in my experience were very, very few. There's, there's maybe one or two, but the, in the profession, it is very much in family law, I find people go into family law for very similar reasons. Um, not always Christian reasons, but there's often, like when I, the family lawyers that I know, they're very much, most of them at least, from what I can see, they're driven by the, that desire to, yeah, to help people. That's a very, very noble aim. So you're in family law. You've actually navigated the really tricky business of going from your law degree and getting a job in the field you want. Mm. Um, it seems, if I'm reading between the lines here, at some point we had the age-old problem of expectations versus reality. Yes. So there was some point where you start feeling friction, and we don't need to go into depth there because one of the things about family law is it's highly, highly, highly confidential. Yes, um, incredibly so. <laughs> but at a certain point... Teaching, education, starts to become an attractive option for you. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Oh, yeah. It was, um, I say it was, a, it was a very, when the decision time came, it was very straightforward and it was quite quick. Um, but if I, in hindsight, it was a very slow process. And um, uh, not to boost uh, your ego, but um, you actually had, I would say, the, um, don't tell my wife this, you had um, <laughs> the, probably the most central role in my uh, coming into Christian education um, because we would, you know, we would, when we'd catch up, we would talk about uh, many things. One key one is um, your experience in education. And there are a lot of times that I would um, just ask my wife after we'd catch up, I would say, you know, do you, do you think I'd be, be a good teacher? And she'd say, yeah, I reckon so. Um, and we're going back to the question, what, when did that, that appeal have come up and when did the change happen? I'd say it was over the course of my career, as I'm looking at what I'm actually doing in law, that expectation versus reality is what I'm expecting that I'll, you know, be helping people and I helping them in the way that I want to be helping people. Is that actually happening? And I started to realize over time that it, it wasn't... I wasn't helping people in the way that I wanted to help people because I wanted to help people in a way that would be, um, maybe the word is transformative or restorative even, in that these, these people come to you in the darkest moment of their life and you want to help them out of that darkness. And in my experience, uh, your job as a family lawyer is people come to you in the darkest moment of their life and your job is to help them get through that darkness to a side where things are a bit tidier. Maybe they're not out of that, that hole, so to speak, but they, circumstances are a bit easier to navigate. And then you let them loose, and you don't really see the results of that. Or sometimes the results you see of that are their kids come back 
Um, from what I've seen from more experienced lawyers is you get the next generation coming to your door and the cycle continues. There must be something for you that would have been quite unsatisfying about that. You're a, you're a gospel guy. You love the gospel. You've seen yourself changed and your friends changed by the gospel. And, of course, helping people navigate the murky legal waters during a dispute, that's really beneficial. Someone's got to do that job. Yeah. But of Absolutely. course, the gospel is going to do some really heavy lifting. And yeah. in some ways, it must have been a very frustrating experience for you to have to only, in some ways, leave the job half done. Oh, it was. And because I would see, you know, I'd see colleagues who are doing amazing work because it is very important work to be helped. Like the, these sort of issues need navigating. But for me, it wasn't the expectation I had. I wasn't expecting people to come in. I would tidy up a bit of a mess for them and then they'd go off and they'd still be you know they'd still be just as miserable their kids potentially not any better off and so when it came to it came to COVID times and I was at home uh, isolated doing uh, doing my job without any of my colleagues around realizing that a lot of what I really enjoyed was the um, interaction with people where you get to actually sit down help people uh, talk problems through and I realized that it's, it didn't meet my expectations. I, or it, it didn't meet the expectations I brought to it and what I was expecting out of the career. And that's where I started to... I think uh, the, that all of that build-up into thinking about education, considering what, like, what am I accomplishing in my job, uh, is that what I want to actually be doing? And I remember... Um, I got to a point where I told my wife, I'm not sure if I can keep doing this. And um, my loving wife, who I love very dearly, uh, said in my time of, of confusion and need, said, well, then find something else to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was, it was at that point, it was exactly what I needed to hear because it just kind of snapped me out of a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a spiral that I was going into. And I thought, actually, yeah, like... I'm I'm educated. I've got I've got experience. I have transferable skills. What else can I do? And I remember I was um, thinking about a few different things. And I remember talking to you um, at one point, And this was you know there was social distancing and everything. Please don't come after us, government. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> but uh, I remember you were talking about the ministry of Christian education and how you're not only educating kids. You're developing them mentally, but you're also developing them as humans. You're educating humans. Um, and from a ministry standpoint, the potential for evangelism and sharing the gospel as well in Christian education is so much more than even like a full-time ministry potentially. Um, and that was, I think that was a huge point in when, I, when I was making the decision. It was more than that of course, and going into education. But that was a big one for Christian Ed. That was a big deal, wasn't it? Because, as I said earlier, you're a gospel guy, and at this time of career change, I don't think you would mind me saying you were also entertaining going into full-time ministry, vocational ministry as well. That was, that was on the cards. And one of the things I think people don't understand too well about Christian education is the fantastic opportunity to not only disciple young Christians, but to also share the gospel with young unbelievers. They're huge opportunities. Now, I may or may not, by the time this has come out, have published an article um, about this. So if I have, I'll link it in the show notes. And if I haven't, just keep an eye out for it. But one of the things is um, 
people don't realize that most Christian schools are between 30 and 80 percent Christians. So you've got a significant chunk of non-Christians oh, yeah. in your classroom who you have open license. It's actually part of your job description to share the gospel with these young people. Yeah. To put that into perspective, um, when I myself was coordinating a youth group, we would be rejoicing. We'd be over the moon when we'd have one or two non-Christians coming along in an evening. Mm. Now, of course, we should have been. That's still a great opportunity, and we thank God for that. But when stacked against my role as a Christian educator, I, I, I see more non-Christian uh, youth and get to share the gospel and pray with more non-Christian youth every day as an educator um, compared to a whole year as a youth group coordinator. It is such a gospel-rich task that we have here as Christians working in a Christian school. Yeah, it's... It is huge, um, and working like working at Christian school now, because I was another thing I was surprised by is how, or I'd rather say blessed by, is how smoothly I made this transition. But I'm I'm working in a Christian school now, and even now already in in year one, the the amount of input that I've been able to have in students' lives has been so much more I feel than than as a lawyer. In that, like, I've, I've, I have students who are going through the sorts of circumstances that I would see day in and day out as a family lawyer. Very, the sorts of things that you no kid should have to go through. Because it is traumatizing. When you're talking to child development, say a separation is, is a traumatizing thing. It's a hard time for any kid. Yeah, and I think, and parents often don't see this, and I say this not to place judge, but just out of observation, is you have kids who think who will blame themselves and I don't think this is an unknown thing is that separation is the hardest on the kids no matter what the circumstances the kids are the ones who suffer because they're not just passively experiencing this separation and so I've have kids going through this sort of thing and because of the uh, the rapport and and um, relationship that I have with the the student these things come out in conversation and being able to tell a kid this isn't your fault uh, this is something that is that sucks, but is it is okay to feel the way that you do. On top of being able to do this from the standpoint of a Christian worldview, which I think is probably the most comforting worldview, at least in my experience, is um, it's already been huge. The that impact, and you have that robust satisfaction of being able to readily include all that stuff you would have had to be very tentative with when you're practicing as a lawyer. Oh, so yeah. you're trying to bring hope and healing and wholeness into a situation as a lawyer. And again, no, no, no one is diminishing that job. It's a, it's, a, it's a necessary job. We're grateful to God for the lawyers out there. However, as a Christian educator, you're actually meeting some of the people in a very similar circumstance, yet you get to bring the whole message of the gospel in there. And we know that Jesus came that we would have life and have it in abundance. There, there is an abundant, joyful life offered in the gospel. There's, um, there's hope for broken people. There's, yeah. there's healing for those who are suffering. And it's, it's not a quick and easy fix, no, but it is the fix. The gospel is the fix. And so you, being in a Christian school, yeah. are able to actually provide holistic care to, in some ways, many of the same people that, you would have been dealing with the opportunity to uh, just love your students 
is gigantic. I think if if you if I look at where I was as a lawyer with my my desire to be um, being a gospel centered lawyer, it's very difficult because your job as a lawyer is very um, it, it is not pastoral. It, it, people want it to be pastoral until they get the bill. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but um, it's not pastoral at the end of the day. And so the number of my clients who knew that I was a Christian or even knew what my worldview was, I, I would doubt any of them really did if they didn't actually know me as a, uh, personally. And not many of them did because that's just not very ethical. If, if I knew somebody personally, I would send them to, to a co-worker or to another lawyer. Um, but the number of my students who know me as a Christian, as well as their teacher, every single one of them. <laughs> like it's, it is, again, like you said, it's part of the job description. And then being able to, um, being able to have that color every interaction that we have is a huge thing. So that when, when I'm teaching, it is from the Christian perspective. When I'm giving pastoral care, it is from the Christian perspective. When I'm showing them, uh, when I'm showing them the love of Christ, it is. This is the love of Christ. I, I love you because Christ loves you. And I love you for, for who you are. You are, um, you know, you make mistakes, but that doesn't define you because we are loved in, in spite of the things that we've done. And that's the, um, the joy of, of the faith. So that's one of the parts of Christian education that you've clearly loved is your ability to bring the gospel, to bring the Christian message in, to live a public Christian life. And from what I've seen and from what I've heard, you do that really, really well. There are, of course, other aspects of education which seem to suit you down to a T. One of them is that you have this um, ability to continue to learn almost in almost any circumstance. And I love it. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how I can get some of that for myself. Yeah. ADHD. <laughs> that's the, <laughs> the secret. Well, I, if that's what it is, I need some of that. Um, people describe teaching as, as the uh, the overflow. So your knowledge is like the reservoir, and if you, you you've got to keep pumping in the reservoir if you want to keep getting overflow. You you love to learn, and so it would seem that out of your love to learn, um, your teaching has come quite naturally. Would that be an accurate assessment? I think so, I th- and I think that was one of the things that was actually a factor that brought me into teaching is um, one of my favorite parts of being a lawyer uh, I don't think it was my client's favorite part I would love to go in depth in the law and I'd love to explain things and I got very good at simplifying that down because you start to notice people will nod off quite quickly when you talk about section 60 cc of the family law act 1975 if anybody's interested <laughs> let me know it's fun um, but uh, I love taking a knowledge and then sharing that knowledge. And I love doing that with people. And so when people ask, like, and actually at the moment when I was becoming a teacher, one of the things was, gee, it looks like you're going into this pretty quickly. Are you sure about this? But that, that's literally the job of a teacher is to know things and to share that knowledge. And uh, I think it's very accurate to say that it is an overflow, is that I, I become very obsessive about learning. So when it comes to preparing lessons, uh, and putting content together. I need, almost out of a, an obsession, I need to know more than I'm going to cover because uh, the lesson could go off track in a bad way, but it could also go off track in a good way where you're asked something that was just not planned on being covered. And you need to know that. So if I'm gonna teach grammar, um, 
I need to know more grammar than my students are ever going to know. And that's okay with me because I'll find it fascinating and I'll love it. Uh, but I, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's one of the things that really brought me to education is a love of knowledge and the desire to be an expert in, in that. And I think that is potentially one of the best ways to be a teacher is to be an expert. And that's what I would advocate for anybody wanting to be a teacher is if you're, or how do I know that I would be a good teacher? How do I know that I should be a teacher? Is do you love knowledge and do you love sharing knowledge? And more importantly, are you willing to become an expert in a field? Not even in a practical capacity, but are you willing to just become an expert for the fun of it? There's a general love of knowledge, which is fuel for the teacher. It really makes your job a whole lot easier. There have been times where I've had to work to achieve that level of zeal for what I've been teaching. But when, when you do achieve, and often I find, and John Hattie will talk about this interestingly enough, he'll talk about motivation is a, a function in some ways of expertise. So the more you know, the more motivated you can get about it. And you see that even with students. With grammar, they, they whinge and moan at times, but they, they start to grab onto a few key ideas. They're building a knowledge base, and all of a sudden, they know what to do, and they're motivated about it. The same is true for teachers. There have been some subjects where the more I've learned, the more passionate I am about it. And that, I think, for teacher and student alike, is the case. So that's really fantastic advice then for people considering teaching do, do you like to learn do you yeah. do you like becoming an expert on certain things as we close there might be someone listening to this going well i am interested i i'm i'm feeling a lack of satisfaction in my current job teaching you know what it actually seems from a christian perspective it seems like a really high value gospel proposition but i just don't know if i can take the years off to retrain what would you have to say to a person in that situation? My first thing would be, um, that's a very serious consideration, and it was for me. Because you're, you're traveling down your career, uh, are you going to slam the brakes to make a hard right into another field, which is going to really, it's going to slow down your speed, you're going to feel like you've taken a couple steps back. But in practice, and in reality, my experience has been, quite smooth it's because in Australia especially you have two paths to become a teacher um, and I hope this will be helpful for those thinking about it because it was something that I was wondering you have two paths you have the Bachelor of Education and then you have the Master of Teaching and if you are if you are going about it in the way that I've gone about it where you have a profession already and you have a degree you can go into the into the Master of uh, Teaching and, um, oh, shoot, I'm being bitten by an ant. Hold on. That's one of the things about an immersive experience like the Bruni Island Teaching and Learning Conference is <laughs> right in the middle of our interview. <laughs> Skirk has been attacked by an ant, but we soldier on regardless. We do. All right, where was I? Master of Teaching. Yep. Bachelor of Education, Master of Teaching. If you already have a profession, you can do your master's, which is, a, uh, is two years. All right? Um, and that is a very quick two years because what you can do and what I did is I, I stopped being a lawyer and I went into being a TA. And a teacher's aide. A teacher's aide, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I applied for uh, CST because it was, it was, I, 
I decided when I was going to be a teacher, I want to go into Christian education. Just to Christian Schools acronyms. Tasmania. Yeah, is, to yeah. these acronyms, Christian Schools Tasmania, yes. Yep. Christian Schools Tasmania is um, in, in, in Tasmania. Great, uh, great source of Christian education. Uh, it's uh, you work at one of their schools. Yep. And and so do you. And so do I. And this is not a sponsored <laughs> post, but we are open to it. Yes. Uh, send send Paul that money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, uh, technically they are sending you the money because you know they. True. Yeah. They, yeah. You work for them. I do. Um, but I digress. So I got a a job as a teacher's aide in at Christian Schools Tasmania. And it really demystified education for me. I realized that it's it's not a gigantic undertaking to shift into being a teacher because at the end of the day, what is a teacher but a knowledge expert? And if you already have a career, you know, everybody is a knowledge expert in something. And what you're doing is you're changing your context. So the, the degree itself, the master's, is two years. Um, in that time, it's I found it very easy to be a TA while also doing a full uh, full study load. There's a sense in which if you've come out of a pretty high-octane profession like law, for example, I've got another friend who came out of the Air Force, um, that full-time Masters of Teaching is going to be something you will be able to complete off the side of your desk. Yeah. So when I, I came from running my own business and I actually continued to run my own business and I ticked off the Masters in a little over 12 months because I overloaded and did it through two universities and uh, really wanted just the fastest route possible, mm. you did yours quite quickly too. And so if you're in a high-octane profession, like if you're doing a lot of thinking already... Yeah. I really do envisage people having an easier time it's, of it than they would. second nature. That's right. Really, is what I would say, is that it is something that, you know, it's not easy, of course. Uh, it's simple in a way, but it's not it, you, It's it's not going to be like you quit working and you just kind of brush through it. Um, I wouldn't want to paint that picture. But it is also not overburdensome. So to talk turkey, you were doing basically full-time TA work. Yep. And you were also studying your Masters of Teaching at a slightly overloaded rate. Yeah, about 1.2. And so it's it's doable. If someone's thinking, okay, I've got to get into teaching, but then I'll have to take two years out of paid work to do a Masters. Yeah, no, you don't. You just <laughs> you get a job as TA. And and here's where it. I would recommend anybody who's doing their Masters should get a job as a TA. Because um, I say there's two reasons. First, experience. Second, job opportunity. So, experience-wise, you are showing up every day. You're in a different classroom every single period. You get to see a bunch of different teachers teaching in a bunch of different ways. You're getting exposure to pedagogy. You're getting exposure to content. Uh, you're getting exposure to students. And this is all stuff that uh, the masters tells you that they're going <laughs> to walk you through. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> No offense uh, to any of my lecturers. Some offense from me, but none, <laughs> none from you, of course. None from me, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, but you're getting all that experiment, ex experiment, all experience, juicy, juicy experience. And on top of that, you, so you're developing as a teacher before you're even a teacher. And then on top of that, you are networking. Because, of course, you're talking to the teachers, you're, you have... Uh, the, the people who are your bosses now are going to, would be your bosses as a teacher. And that's how I got in is um, I was very fortunate 
to be offered uh, offered a job um, from CST based on uh, my uh, my work as a TA. One of the things you said earlier that I really agree with was that being a teacher's aide demystifies the teaching experience. Oh, yeah. In some ways, teaching is quite mysterious for the reason that people think they're going to have to be standing in front of 20 or 25 or 30 kids, that they're going to have to be a complete expert, know everything about everything all the time. Because that's your experience as a student. Yeah, your teachers just know what's going on. And so you think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have to be flawless, this sort of Harvey Specter, Sherlock Holmes style, <laughs> um, just, just freak. I'm going to have to be so good at everything. When I was training for the marathon, my brother, two of my younger brothers actually have won the Launceston Marathon. They wrote me into it, and I said, I don't know if I can do this, fellas. And they said, you think you can't run a marathon? Come and see who's actually running marathons, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then think about whether or not you can do it. And the same is true for teaching. Now, of course, we're surrounded by fantastic educators, but there's a wide range of people there. Oh, yes. You've got different, different personality types, different levels of energy, different backgrounds, different um, professional and personal backgrounds. People think you have to be some kind of elite level savant at times to be yeah. a teacher. And so they get very, very nervous if they're studying. Oh, I'm going to have to be completely flawless in the classroom. Or it's something that keeps them out of the classroom entirely. But being a teacher's aide, we get to rub shoulders with these yeah. teachers. These people who are doing it already, you get to meet them. You get to know their backgrounds, their quirks. You get to know their limitations and mm. get rid of that Harvey Specter, Sherlock Holmes style image yeah. that some people carry around. Sometimes uh, a student will throw a question at you that you just cannot prepare for. You can do all the prep that you like, be as knowledgeable on a subject, but you you always have that switched on student who will ask the most insightful question that you don't know the answer to. And you can turn the inquiry process and answering that question into a, a teaching moment. Because like something that I, I turn it actually into part of my pedagogy is when a student asks me um, sometimes it's, it's a, what a word means, and I don't know the answer to it. Sometimes it's just a piece of content, and I didn't think to explore that. Uh, you can go away and bring the answer back, or sometimes what I like to do is I'll just throw my computer screen up on the board and walk them through my inquiry process. It's like, like saying, oh, I, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Let's find out. Let's go into uh, Google. Let's go and you can use Google Scholar. You can use Google. You can uh, do whatever inquiry method there is. I'm ashamed to say that sometimes Google is just a great way to find basic stuff out. Um, but walking them through the process of finding a source, questioning whether the source is accurate, um, thinking about how you would break down that information. If you're doing something like uh, if it comes in line with the content, like if you're helping them write an essay, how might you potentially use that information that you've now picked up in an essay? You're showing, you're doing that, that teaching and learning cycle of, uh, of demonstrating the acquisition of knowledge and the use of knowledge. And so it's, it really does demystify because really, if I'm speaking without any teaching jargon, you, you've been asked a question by a student, you don't know the answer to the question, you tell them, no, I don't know the answer to that, let's find out. And then you find out along with them. That's teaching. And it's a great teaching move. You're modeling many of those metacognitive strategies, which are so powerful. And as we talked about, it, 
is taking you away from that space where you go, I have to be the savant. I have to be the incredibly knowledgeable person here. So we've looked today, Jacob, at your transition. You you started off um, studying psychology, moving into law, then by God's grace, uh, moving into education, and you're now a full-time educator. I don't want to emphasize God's grace through the uh, through the tool of Paul Matthews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Um, so if you're out there listening to this, I sincerely hope that this pushes you in the direction of Christian education if you're not there already. Of course, if you're content in your job, uh, then, then go with God, keep warm and well fed. And I'm glad we've got plenty of uh, Christian lawyers and plumbers and public servants out there but if you're if you're looking for something that as we as we might say is a high value gospel proposition where you get, where you get to live out your um, Christian life in front of many other people where you get to explicitly declare the gospel you get to live a, a Christ-shaped life then Christian education should be one of the things that you are considering and I sincerely hope that I'm able to have this discussion with with many other people that are currently in other fields and are now moving into or thinking of moving into education. I really do hope that uh, if that's you, that you pull the trigger on that. And I hope this discussion with Jacob has been something that will push you in that direction. Uh, So Jacob, thank you very much for your time today. And I I really do hope that our conversation has moved the needle for some people out there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, I hope so as well. 